Okay. All right, every time I do this, I don't think I want to stand on this box. Is that okay? It makes me very close to you, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm going to leave this on the table so it doesn't fall like last time. Good morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's loud. I'm trying to get situated here. Sorry. Um, Greg is on his way home, maybe, from Washington. He had to go to area pastor meetings this, this last week, plus he had a funeral for his, his aunt yesterday that he did. So he is on his way home. So I'm just going <laughs> to say right now, because I'm, I'm feeling very anxious, and this is not normal, but I think, I think God is wanting me to share this with you guys, so... This is not how I would normally start my sermon, a sermon but um, how was your all's week? <laughs> because my week was horrible. <laughs> and um, it's been a struggle all week. I have had one thing after another erupt in my life from everywhere. And then you add on top of that puppies who don't sleep through the night and a mama dog who doesn't take care of them, so you have to be there for them. Um, so a little bit of sleep deprivation, a little bit of God saying, hey, this is what you're speaking on, so guess what you get to go through. Um, so it's been, a little, it's been a little rough, and I have not had a lot of sleep this week. I had a rough time putting this message together, and I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> um, Anyway, so I think I'm going to pray first, and then I'll start. So, Father, I thank you for the honor and the privilege and the blessing it is to be able to speak to these beautiful people. Father, I thank you for the family that you've placed me in, and I thank you, God, that you are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. And I ask that you would bless my words through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So a man who had just had surgery at Mercy Hospital was in the recovery room. And a sister of Mercy was at his bedside, and she went over to him, and she said, you know, how are you doing? And he said, I'm okay. And she's like, you're going to be just fine. But Mr. Jones, we need to know how you intend to pay your bill. Is it possible that you can pay in cash? And he said, no. Do you have any insurance? No, I don't. I'm sorry. She said, well, do you have any close relatives who could help you? And he said, no, only my sister in Texas, but she's a humble spinster nun. Mr. Jones, I must correct you. Nuns are not spinsters, for they are married to God, the nun explained. Well, in that case, he said, send my bill to my brother-in-law. <laughs> All right. How do you define a person who is blessed by their good looks, by their popularity, how much money they make, how much time they have to do hobbies and play. They have a nice car, nice house, successful career. Maybe they seem to be lucky in all that they do. Their family seems to be all together. The world tells us that blessings and a blessed life is found in all of the external stuff. 
but quite honestly, how many of you know that if not all of those things, most of them, we have actually no control over? And they can be changed or taken away from us in an instant. So we've been looking for the past month at the Beatitudes. And Jesus is showing us the path to blessedness or happiness. And that it's the opposite of the world's view, the world's path to happiness. So I'm going to start in Matthew 5 and I'm going to read the Beatitudes. Um, I'm going to read them all. And then we'll begin. So Matthew 5, chapter 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness', righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So last week, Pastor Greg looked at the fourth beatitude, which was blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And he shared that as we cultivate a hunger for thirst, uh, cultivate a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that it begins to show itself in our actions how we behave, how we treat others. And we realize that we will never find lasting satisfaction in pleasure, performance, or possessions, but only in Jesus. And that we are only as close to God as we choose or want to be. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied and then the very next thing he says is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I would like to suggest to you this morning that showing mercy is the natural progression and outward expression of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If we're actively hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then we should not only be becoming more like Christ, but also more consciously aware of the incredible mercy that we have received from the creator of all. And then the way that we treat or talk to others or about others should also change or be changing as we begin to love mercy because that is exactly what we have received. What do you think of when you hear the word mercy? This is a very, very important question to ask because in Christianity, as a Christian, mercy is a pretty big deal. It is literally a relationship that begins with mercy and would not exist without it. So a definition of mercy would be that 
it be compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's harm or one's power to punish or harm. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Has anyone ever shown you mercy that you didn't deserve? <clears throat> Maybe someone loaned you money knowing you could never repay them. Um, maybe a teacher gave you an extension on a paper that was due that was crucial for your grade. Maybe you made a bad decision that demanded consequences that were waived or lessened. Maybe you got pulled over and you didn't get a ticket or you got less of a ticket. <laughs> um, in 38 years of driving, I think I've been only pulled over four times for speeding. Um, I think they've all been here since we've lived in Montana. Um, when Austin was three, we were sick, all of us, the entire family. All four kids were sick, I was sick, Greg was sick, and I had taken the kids to the doctor and had to go get prescriptions and medicine or whatever, and we're driving home and coming across the bridge, I don't know, that's a speed trap, coming across the bridge, I get pulled over. and. I mean, everyone is really sick, and you can tell that everyone's really sick. So the officer comes up to the window, and I put my window down, and I, you know, grab my, my license and my registration, and Austin, from the back, in his little car seat, he says, Mommy, are we going to jail? <laughs> and the officer's face just, like, melted. He just was like, oh, no, sweetheart, nobody's going to jail. So he ran my, he ran my um, license and all that and came back and just gave me a warning and said, go home and feel better. <laughs> I thank Austin for that one because <laughs> it was the, the sweet little three-year-old who was so concerned about us going to jail. Um, so people often ask what the difference is between grace and mercy. I was shown mercy in that situation. Grace is not or grace is getting what you do not deserve. So like our eternal life, our salvation, we're getting what we do not deserve. That is grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay, that would be condemnation. Um, it's not getting what we do deserve. So a mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. And the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and that justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, said Napoleon. Sir, the woman cried out, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, he said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. He didn't get what he deserved. So are you a mercy person or do you typically only want justice? Anyone want it? <laughs> so I know people who have the gift of mercy like Eileen. She's not here this morning, but Eileen has the gift of mercy. But I also know those who seemingly don't have a mercy bone in their entire body, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> but hopefully, most of us will fall somewhere in the middle. 
Blessed are the merciful. God says multiple times in the Bible that he does not want our gifts and our sacrifices when they are given to him out of ritual or hypocrisy to appease him. So we see this in 1 Samuel 15. The prophet Samuel is telling King Saul that the Lord is rejecting him as king because of his disobedience and that to obey is better than sacrifice. In Psalm 40, David recognizes that God does not want his sacrifice or his offering, but that he wants him to do his will. In Jeremiah 7, God wants obedience rather than sacrifices. And in Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And in Micah 6, God has confronted Israel about their disobedience once again. And in response, they're asking him, what should we do? How can we be restored? Should we do this sacrifice or that sacrifice? Or, you know, they're offering all kinds of sacrifices and things that they could do to appease God. But sacrifices are not what God wants. And God's response to Israel in Micah 6, 8 is... He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that mercy is a requirement. God requires us to love mercy. In James 2.13, James says, There will be no mercy shown for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Or other translations will say mercy triumphs over justice. That's a pretty strong word. There will be no mercy shown for those who have not shown mercy to others. Mercy is central to who God is. God is mercy. And he has been pouring out his mercy on his people on you and on me since the foundations of the world. He does not give us what we deserve, but in fact, he gives us what we desperately need. And in response, he requires us to love mercy and to extend that mercy to those around us. And this can be illustrated in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. So Matthew 18 starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, or since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the religious leaders of that time taught that people should forgive those who offend them up to three times. Seems like a lot, maybe. So Peter, thinking he's a pretty generous kind of guy, asked Jesus if seven times was enough to forgive. And Jesus does what Jesus does, and he ups the ante. And he says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. Jesus is saying that there is basically no point in even keeping track of how many times we forgive someone. And number two is that mercy forgives. So every one of us have been hurt or wronged, even if we were right. So the question then becomes, what do we do with that? Especially with those who repeatedly offend us. It has been said that forgiveness is surrendering my being right or my right to hurt you or punish you for hurting me. So how you act when you're right, when you are right, shows your character just as much as it does as how you act when you are wrong. When you are right, do you extend forgiveness and mercy? Or do you maybe let them squirm for just a little while, just to be sure that they knew you were right? Do you seek to reconcile the relationship right away? Or do you enjoy the power of being right for a while? James 1.19 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Merciful people don't get offended. Okay, don't get offended at me for saying that. But merciful people don't get offended. We are living in a time in history where people are literally offended by everything and anything. And if they're offended, you're canceled. It, there's not even a second to think about it. If they don't agree with you, it's over. And it's all over the internet and it's all over social media. And quite honestly, we can probably find a support group for everything we're offended by. But in order to be offended, we have to forget all of the times that we have been offensive. Even if it wasn't intentional. And sometimes, while we might not want to admit it, we want to just stay in that place of offense. Am I the only one? <laughs> Um, just let me have my pity party. 
Like seriously, that's kind of the way I was feeling on Wednesday morning. I was sitting on my couch, tears rolling down my eyes, offended that we have dogs, offended at all this stuff that's going on. And then, you know, I had, um, Greg had me call somebody from another church about a situation and that situation is in relationship to somebody else that it was the same situation we had gone through with that person and, you know, trying to be there for them. And it, but it brought all this stuff up in me. And I just, like, I sat there crying going, I don't want to feel this. I've forgiven that person. I've taken care of those things. I forgive that we have puppies. <laughs> I forgive, you know, I mean, it's like all of, all of that. I don't want to be that kind of a person. I had a friend, um, this was many years ago, I remember sitting in the office here and she was just having a bad life, I guess, and was complaining and upset and angry and, you know, we were talking through things and and I, as I was talking to her, she was realizing that I can't stay in this place. And But then she was getting mad because she's like, how come I have to get, take the higher road? How come I have to be the one who doesn't feel like this? How come I can't just sit here and wallow in my pity? And I know I felt that way too. We just feel like it's not fair. But God calls us to a higher road. Maybe it's because we feel justified in our pity, <laughs> in our anger, or we want to make sure that Others are on our side, so we let it go a little, you know, talk to a few people. Um, or maybe we simply just refuse to forgive because it's not fair, and it hurts, and it hurts deep. But you know what the reality is? Is that before we knew Jesus, our Every single one of our lives were offensive to God. But God. But God covered our offense with the blood of Jesus. In fact, in Psalm 103, 11 and 12, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Does that mean God has a bad memory or he's forgetful? I don't think so. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing of our past, our present, and our future. And yet, out of his love and his great mercy for us, the God of the universe chooses to remember our sins no more. He is choosing to not remember them. Isaiah 43.25, God says, I... Yes, I am the one and only who completely erases your sins, never to be seen again. I will not remember them ever again. Freely I do this because of who I am. So you see, the unmerciful servant had an unpayable debt. As of yesterday, I checked on Google, 10,000 talents of silver were equivalent to just over $247 million. And though it's not really clear because some versions do refer to it as gold, if that's the case, 
then his debt was actually equivalent to $22 billion. Okay, so either way, the debt was so enormous that there is no way he could have ever paid it off in his lifetime. Even though, knowing how great his debt was, that is exactly what he begged of the king. It wasn't, it's not like today where you can just, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a bankruptcy situation. They didn't have that then. He knew full well that it would mean that he, his wife, his children, and possibly his children's children would be in slavery for their entire lives. That's why he begged for mercy. But because he was the king, the king had pity on him. He had mercy on him, and he forgave him a debt that the king himself knew could never, ever be repaid. But <laughs> after being forgiven of this unfathomable debt, what does the servant do? He sees his fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, which, as of yesterday, is equivalent to $206. He grabs him by the throat, choking him, demanding that he pay him back now. And what does he do? The servant falls to his knees and begs for mercy and says, I will repay you. In that moment, he earned his name of the unmerciful servant. <laughs> um, he throws him in prison until it can be paid back. So wait. That right there should bring up like this, this is not fair, like a, like a deep visceral reaction in us because $22 billion versus $206 or even $247 million versus 206 How could anybody do that? How could anyone be so selfish? Well, the king didn't think that was great. <laughs> so he got thrown into prison to be punished and to suffer for the rest of his life. Can you imagine how the king felt? Besides being angry, like seriously, shocked? Is that my earring? Sorry, I'll take it off. Um, used? Dis is this still on? Okay. Disrespected? Betrayed? Indignant? <laughs> like, what in the world just happened? Have you ever been betrayed? Disrespected? Stabbed in the back? Used? When all you did was show kindness and mercy to someone? I know I have. But this parable shows us the magnitude of the debt that was paid for us on the cross. It, it's so uneven, <laughs> like there's no, there's no comparing. And that's what Jesus did for us. The magnitude of the forgiveness and the need for compassion and mercy that we receive freely from God. At the end of this parable then, Jesus drops the mic. He says to them, 
this is what my heavenly father is going to do to you if you refuse to forgive others. Merciful people let go. They release and they forgive. The unmerciful servant went straight for the throat, literally choking his fellow servant. Have you ever gone for the throat? But you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how much they've hurt me. You don't know how they've stole, what they've stolen from me, how they've embarrassed me, how they've slandered me. And after all I've done for them, you don't know what they've done to me. How many of us refuse to show mercy by reminding those who have offended or hurt or betrayed us of all the things that they've done? Holding it against them, perhaps making vows against them, rehearsing and rehashing the offense over and over again in our heads or to anyone who will listen. When we don't show mercy, we either don't realize or we have forgotten how great our own debt is. And when we've forgotten God's mercy towards us, we will forget to be merciful towards others. In The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom describes an unexpected encounter with a Nazi guard. I'm going to read this story. It's, just a, little, it's a little long, but um, I want you to hear this. She writes, It was at a church service in Munich sharing the message that God forgives when I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück concentration camp. And suddenly, it was all there a room full of mocking men, the piles of clothes, Betsy's pain-blanched face and thin body. Oh, how thin she was. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we, had, where we were sent, and he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. He came up to me as church was emptying, beaming and bowing and offering his hand. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand that was extended. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those of thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for this cruel things that I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand coming out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I, whose sins had every day been forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, 
but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. I see it every day. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. Those who had nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperatures of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, Corey had to ultimately make the choice. Would she hold on to and refuse to forgive? Or would she extend mercy and let go, even of something as horrible as she experienced? Jesus' warning is for those who refuse to forgive, not for those who are struggling to forgive. Corey struggled, and rightfully so. She suffered incredibly, but she remembered God's great mercy towards her. And she chose not to refuse, and God filled her with his love. Let's not forget the great mercy that has been extended to us and what we have been forgiven from, and that forgiven people forgive people. We hear all the time, rejected people reject people, or hurt people hurt people, but forgiven people forgive people. In Luke 10, 25 to 37, an expert in the law asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. He said to him, what is, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think, Jesus said, provided to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus tells the expert that he's correct. And after he tells him the story, we can, or after we read the story, we can see that there was a deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I can, the expert in the law clearly did not expect the Samaritan to be the one showing compassion or mercy. And I don't know if you noticed, but at the end of that, he didn't even refer to him as the Samaritan. He referred to him as the one. Like he couldn't even say his name. Like his attitude towards him was that of disgust. Okay? Um, but his attitude contradicts the very thing he had said at the very beginning of that passage when Jesus asked him what's written in the law. is to love your neighbor as yourself. He literally just told him, this is what we're to do, and then he didn't. He has no mercy for the Samaritans. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, there's a promise. We receive mercy when we show mercy. Number three is that mercy is cultivated. Being merciful is not something that we're born with, it's not something we just know how to do. <laughs> um, it doesn't come naturally. It really needs to be developed and cultivated in our lives. My motivation to become kind to someone else comes from the understanding that God has been endlessly kind to me. It says in Romans 2.4 that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his severity, not his fear of judgment, not our own internal sense of right or wrong. God's kindness alone leads us to repentance, saving us from sin and death. Matthew tells us that at the Sermon on the Mount that large crowds had gathered to hear Jesus speak, and among those in the crowd would have been Roman guards. And I wonder what was going through the mind of a Roman soldier as Jesus says, blessed be the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Because you see, in the first century Roman culture, they did not cultivate mercy. In fact, mercy was not seen as a virtue at all, but it was seen as a sign of weakness. One Roman philosopher called mercy a disease of the soul. To them, mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man. 
and especially a real Roman. They glorified courage, justice, discipline, and absolute power. They looked down on mercy because they saw it as weakness, and weakness was despised above all other human limitations. Mercy was not something anyone deserved. And the Roman soldiers were not, <laughs> they lived that out, they were not merciful. What about, it doesn't really say who was there, it kind of gives areas where they had come from um, to hear Jesus. What did they think? This is, this is all countercultural, kind of counterpolitical even, this mercy thing. It's like, what is this all about? Because most people aren't shown mercy. And maybe they've never been experienced mercy at all. What would they have thought when they heard Jesus say that? With Jesus as our example, he showed mercy everywhere he went. You see, we can focus on the wrong or we can focus on the person. And Jesus focused on the person. Like the woman caught in adultery. By law, she should have been stoned. But Jesus saw her, the broken woman, before him. He didn't see her sin. And when he asked who, that whoever's sinless, go ahead and throw that first stone, every single one of them dropped their stone and walked away. No one condemned her. Jesus didn't condemn her. And you know what? He was sinless. And he still didn't, he did not condemn her. He told her to go and sin no more. I remember many years ago a situation we had where we had hired someone to do something for us. Um, and someone else we knew got really, really upset. Not quite sure why it meant so much to them, but they got upset that we had hired this person because they couldn't believe we would use them after all they had done to us. Those were the words. How could you, how could you do that after all they've done to you, all they've said, you know, how they've hurt you? Mercy does not mean that we excuse or we ignore sin or behaviors. I am not suggesting that at all. It doesn't even mean that we see someone as innocent, but it does mean that we see them as human. And in this particular example, also still worthy of hire. Um, maybe it was a little uncomfortable, but it was, it was, it was the right thing to do, you know? And isn't this what Jesus does for us? Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus became fully human in every way. When I focus on the person, when I believe that Jesus paid the same debt for them as he did for me, that his mercy is the same for them as it is for me, that he loves them as much as he loves me, it changes the way I see people and hopefully the way I treat them. Because the reality is, is that when we see others the way Jesus sees them, we realize that they are no different than we are. Just complicated, stubborn, messy people created in God's image and worth dying for. 
Mercy is an action. That's number four. Mercy in the Bible is more than just an attitude. It's demonstrated. And yes, even those who have a personality bent towards justice, you can be merciful. (laughs) Mercy is cultivated as we hunger and thirst for Jesus and actively work at not allowing the world, our culture, and just our life from doling our empathy towards others with the help of the Holy Spirit. Merciful people help hurting people. Sometimes we need to take a step back and look at people through the eyes of Jesus. The closer we come to Jesus, the more his mercy and compassion is reflected through us. Sometimes people just need help and it doesn't matter what they've done. Merciful people are patient with those who struggle. Galatians 6 tells us to forgivingly restore our brothers because we might need forgiveness before the day is over. Aren't you thankful that God is patient with you? I am thankful he's patient with me, especially when I struggle. (laughs) Um, Merciful people are kind even to their enemies. Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 and 28, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us and pray for those who hurt us. When we are quick to forgive and to be merciful to those around us, we gain so much more than we could ever give up. As we show mercy, we receive mercy. And then when we let others down or when we blow it, God will bless us with the mercy that we need. We can rest in the goodness of God that he will work all things together for our good, for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm gonna have the worship team come and Billy's gonna come and do communion. I will pray and then Billy's gonna come and do communion for us. Um, so let's, let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, you are holy and you are good. Thank you, Father, for your free gift of mercy. Thank you that you see us who we are, mess and all, that you choose to embrace us completely. Thank you, God, that your mercies are new every morning and that your mercy endures forever. Lord, help us to realize the mercy that was shown to us every day through the forgiveness offered to us through the cross. God, how can we help but not show mercy to others because of what you've done for us? Help us to be merciful people, to choose mercy. that it may change not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. In your precious and holy name, amen.
all you guys are passing those out. Um, you, yeah, I'll take that. Chris and I had uh, some breakfast yesterday, <laughs> and we got on the topic of First Corinthians and specifically about like foods and idols and things like that. Super interesting conversation we had. But as I was kind of praying this morning and even just during during the sermon as well, um, I just kind of felt like the Lord wanted me to read 1 Corinthians 11, um, 17 to the end of chapter 11, which is Paul, you know, in the early church, communion happened every time they met. And communion wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly how we do it today. It was, it was more so of like our family feasts. Every, every time they met, they would have a family feast together and they would break bread and they would do communion together. And I think that's just like such a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. But the thing with the Corinthian church is they were, they were kind of missing the point. And Paul is, is, kind, is trying to correct them. And he says this in, in verse 17, talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with their own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? And of course his answer is no, I'm not going to. And then he starts in, in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and, it, and, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to, to recognize how important communion is. To recognize how that it's much deeper than just eating and drinking together. Communion is about, um, thank you guys. Communion is about examining yourself. It's not just a symbolic thing either. It's there, there's something that happens when we take. It's as if we are once again there with the disciples when Jesus is breaking bread. And Paul says, and when, he, uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. 
and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I wish I could explain what happens in communion. But I think the best way that I could describe it is that it's in this moment when we are just partaking of the body and the blood of Christ that, that we can actually experience that oneness with him. And that's why the early church would would essentially just reenact exactly what Jesus and disciples did. is because they, they knew the significance. So as the worship team plays uh, this song, I just want this moment to be between you and the Lord. If you have things you need to confess between you and the Lord, do that. And then partake you feel like the time is right. Because while this is a church, while this involves the whole body of Christ, this is also between you and the Lord as well. So as the worship team plays, partake is you feel led and then Andrew will close us out in prayer
so thankful for your mercy that is new like the sunrise every morning thank you that your arms are open wide to us Thank you guys for coming today. Um, hope you guys have an awesome, awesome Super Bowl afternoon. Hang out with some friends and family. Go and be the hands and the feet of Jesus this week. We'll see you next week. Hey guys, Billy here. I'm the media director here at Pulse and Foursquare, and I'm glad that you guys could join us this morning. If you guys are looking for more information, you guys can go to pulseandfoursquare.org. And if you guys enjoyed the sermon, consider subscribing or sharing it with a friend. Thanks for joining us this morning, and we hope that you have a blessed week.